welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The History It can start with a knock on the door one morning. It is the local Indian agent, or the parish priest, or perhaps a mounted police officer. The bus for residential school leaves that morning. It is a day the parents have long been dreading. Even if the children have been warned in advance, the morning's events are still a shock. The officials have arrived and the children must go. For tens of thousands of Aboriginal children for over a century, this was the beginning of the residential schooling. They were torn from their parents, who often surrendered them only under threat of prosecution. Then they were hurled into a strange and frightening place, one in which their parents and culture would be demeaned and oppressed. For Frederick Ernst Coe, it started when the Anglican minister and the mounted police arrived with a message that he had to leave his parents' home in Aklavik in the Northwest Territories that morning. Quote, and I didn't get to say goodbye to my dad or my brother Alan, didn't get to pet my dogs or nothing, end quote. The day she left for the Lestock, Saskatchewan school, Marlene Casey's parents drove her into the town of Wadena. There was a big truck there. It had a back door and the truck was full of kids and there was no windows on that truck. Larry Beardy traveled by train from Churchill, Manitoba to the Anglican Residential School in Dauphin, Manitoba, a journey of 1,200 kilometers. As soon as they realized that they were leaving their parents behind, the younger children started crying. At every stop, the train took on more children and they would start to cry as well. That train I want to call that train of tears. Florence Harassi was taken to the Fort Providence Northwest Territories school in a small airplane. On its way to the school, the plane stopped at a number of small communities to pick up students. When the plane took off, there's about six or five older ones didn't cry, but I saw tears come right out of their eyes. Everybody else was crying. There's a whole plane crying. I wanted to cry too, because my brother was crying, but I held my tears back and held him. The arrival at school was often even more traumatizing than the departure from home or the journey. Lily Bruce's parents were in tears when they left her and her brother at the Ellard Bay, British Columbia School. In Fort Chippewine in Northern Alberta, Vitaline Elsie Jenner fought to stay with her mother. I was screaming and hollering, and in my language I said, Mama, Mama, Kaya Nakasin, and in English it was, Mom, Mom, don't leave me, because that's all I knew was to speak Cree, and so the nun took us. Nellie Nigamwantz was raised in Hudson, Ontario, and went to the Sioux Lookout Ontario School in the 1950s and 1960s. When we arrived, we had to register that we had arrived. Then they took us to cut our hair. Bernice Jacks became very frightened when her hair was cut on her arrival at a school in the Northwest Territories. I could see my hair falling, and I couldn't do nothing. And I was so afraid my mom. I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking about mom. I say, mom is going to be really mad, and June is going to be angry, and it's going to be my fault. Marth Basil Cuckoo recalled feeling a chill on first seeing the Point Bleu Quebec school. It was something like a gray day. It was a day without sunshine. It was, it was the impression that I had that I was only six years old then. Well, the nuns separated us, my brothers and then my uncles, then I no longer understood. Then that, that was a period there, of suffering, nights of crying. We all gathered in a corner, meaning that we came together and there we cried. Our nights were like that. 
Pauline Saint-Ange was traumatized by just the sight of the Septio school in Quebec. She fought back when her father tried to take her into the school. I thought in my child's head, I said, you would, you would make me go there, but I will learn nothing, nothing, nothing. Campbell Papakwash was taken against his will to residential school in 1946. And after I was taken there, they took off my clothes and then they deloused me. I didn't know what was happening, but I learned about it later, that they were delousing me, the dirty, no good for nothing savages, lousy. Roy Denny was perplexed and frightened by the clothing that the priests and sisters wore at the Shubenacade Nova Scotia school. We were greeted by this man dressed in black with a long gown. That was the priest, come to find later. And the nuns with their black, black outfits with the white collar and a white, white collar and like a breastplate of white. Calvin Myron recalled being overwhelmed by the size of the Brandon Manitoba school. The only building that I knew up to that time, that moment in my life, was the one-story house that we had. And when I got to the residential school, I seen this big monster of a building, and I've never seen any building that, that large, that high. Archie Hyacinth compared the experience to that of being captured and taken into captivity. That's when the trauma started for me, being separated from my sister, from my parents, and from our, our home. They were no longer free. It was like being, you know, taken to a strange land, even though it was on our land, as I, stood, as I understood later on. When we first went to the Amos Quebec school, Margot Wilde could not speak any French. I said to myself, how am I going to express myself? How will I make people understand what I'm saying? And I wanted to find my sisters to ask them to come and get me. You know, it's sad to say, but I felt I was a captive. On their arrival at residential school, students often were required to exchange the clothes they were wearing for school-supplied clothing. This could mean the loss of homemade clothing that was of a particular value and meaning to them. Murray Crow said his clothes from home were taken and burned at the school that he attended in northwestern Ontario. When Wilbur Abraham's mother sent him to the Alert Bay School in British Columbia, she outfitted him in brand new clothes. When he arrived at the school, he was told to hand in his outfit in exchange for school clothing. That was the last time I saw my new clothes. Dare not to ask questions. Martin Nicholas of Nelson House, Manitoba, went to the Pine Creek, Manitoba school in the 1950s. My mom had prepared me in native clothing. She had made me a buckshin jacket beaded with fringes, and my mom did beautiful work and I was really proud of my clothes. And when I got to residential school, that first day I remember, they stripped us of our clothes. On her arrival at the Presbyterian School in Kenora, Ontario, Lorna Morgan was wearing these nice little beaded moccasins that my grandma had made me to wear for school, and I was very proud of them. She said they were taken from her and thrown in the garbage. Gilles Petiquet, who attended the Point Bleu School, was shocked by the fact that each student was assigned a number. I remember that the first number that I had at the residential school was 95. I had that number, 95, for a year. The second number was number four. I had it for a longer period of time. The third number was 56. I also kept it for a long time. We walked with the numbers on us. Older brothers were separated from younger brothers, Older sisters were separated from younger sisters, and brothers and sisters were separated from each other. Wilbur Abrahams climbed up the steps to the Allard Bay School behind his sisters and started following them to the girl side of the school. Then he felt a staff member pulling him by the ear, telling him to turn the other way. I've always believed that, I think at that particular moment, my spirit left. When Peter Ross was enrolled at the Immaculate Conception School in Aklovik, Northwest Territories, it was the first time he'd ever been parted from his sisters. He said that in all the time he was at the school, he was able to speak with them only at Christmas and on Catholic feast days. Daniel Nanuch recalled that he talked with his sister only four times a year at the Wabasca, Alberta School. They had a fence in the playground. Nobody was allowed near the fence. The boys played on one side, the girls played on the other side. 
Nobody was allowed to go to that fence there and talk to the girls through the fence or whatever. You can't. The only reason Bernice Jacks had wanted to go to residential school was to be with her older sister. But once she was there, she discovered they were to sleep in separate dormitories. On the occasions when she slipped into the older girl's dormitory and crawled into her sister's bed, her sister scolded her and sent her away. My sister never talked to me like that before. Helen Kakiash's older sister tried to comfort her when she first arrived at the Macintosh Ontario School. She recalled that she would try to talk to me and she would get spanked. Bernard Catchaway said that even though he and his sister were both attending the Pine Creek School, they could not communicate with each other. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't wave at her. If you did, you'd get, you know, a push in the head by a nun. On her second day at the Kamloops School in British Columbia, Juliana Alexander went to speak to her brother. Did I ever get a good pounding and licking? Get over there. You can't go over there. You can't talk to him, you know? I said, yeah, but he's my brother. Taken from their homes, stripped of their belongings, and separated from their siblings, residential school children lived in a world dominated by fear, loneliness, and lack of affection. William Herney, who attended the Shibanaki School in Nova Scotia, recalled the first few days in the school as being frightening and bewildering. Within those few days, you had to learn, because otherwise you're going to get your head knocked off. Anyway, you learned everything. You learned to obey. And one of the rules that you didn't break, you obey. And you were scared, and you were very scared. Raymond Cutknife recalled that when he attended the Hobima School in Alberta, he lived with fear. Of his years in two different Manitoba schools, Timothy Henderson said, every day was, you were in constant fear that, your hope was that it wasn't you today that were going to, that was going to be the target, the victim. You know you weren't going to have to suffer any form of humiliation. Shirley Waskowicz said that in kindergarten at the Catholic school in Onion Lake, Saskatchewan, I learned the fear, how to be so fearful at six years old. It was instilled in me. At the Fort Alexander Manitoba School, Patrick Bruyere used to cry himself to sleep. There was, you know, a few nights I remember that I just, you know, cried myself to sleep, I guess, because of, you know, wanting to see my mom and dad. Ernst Sparkman, who attended the Pine Creek School, recalled, I was really lonely and I cried a lot. My brother who was with me said I cried a lot. Paul Dixon, who attended schools in Quebec and Ontario, said that at night, children tried to weep silently. If one child was caught crying, hey, oh, everybody was in trouble. Betsy Anahatak grew up in Kangersuk in Northern Quebec, which was then known as Payne Bay. When her parents were on the land, she lived in a small hostel in the community. When one person would start crying, all the, all the little girls would start crying, all of us. We were different ages. And we would cry like little puppies or dogs right until the night, until we go to sleep, longing for our families. Students' hearts were hardened. Rick Gilbert remembered the Williams Lake British Columbia School as a loveless place. That was one thing about this school, was that when you got hurt or got beat up or something, and you started crying, nobody comforted you. You just sat in the corner and cried and cried till you got tired of crying. Then you got up and carried on with life. Nick Sibiston, who was placed in the Fort Providence School in the Northwest Territories at the age of five, recalled it as a place where children hid their emotions. In residential school, you quickly learn that you should not cry. If you cry, you're teased, you're shamed out, you're even punished. One former student said that during her time at the Sturgeon Landing School in Saskatchewan, she could not recall a staff member ever smiling at a child. Jack Anawak, recalled of his time at Chesterfield Inlet in what is now Nunavut. In the 1950s, there was no love. There was no feelings. It was just supervisory. Lydia Ross, who attended the Cross Lake School in Manitoba, said, if you cried, if you got hurt and cried, there was no nobody to, nobody to comfort you, nobody to put their arms. Stephen Kafwe, who attended Grolier Hall in Inuvik, and Grandin College in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, said this lack of compassion affected the way students treated one another. No hugs, nothing, no comfort. 
everything that I think happened in the residential schools, we picked it up. We didn't get any hugs. You ain't going to get one out of me, I'll tell you that. Victoria McIntosh said that life at the Fort Alexander Manitoba school taught her not to trust anyone. You learn not to cry anymore. You just get harder. And yeah, you learn to shut down. These accounts all come from statements made by former residential school students to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. These events all took place in Canada within the realm of living memory. Like previous generations of residential school children, these children were sent to what they were, in most cases, badly constructed, poorly maintained, overcrowded, unsanitary fire traps. Many children were fed a substandard diet and given a substandard education and worked too hard. For far too long, they died in tragically high numbers. Discipline was harsh and unregulated. Abuse was rife and underreported. It was, at best, institutionalized child neglect. The people who built, funded, and operated the schools offered varying justifications for this destructive intrusion into the lives of Aboriginal families. Through it, they wished to turn the children into farmers and farmers' wives. They wanted the children to abandon their Aboriginal identity and come to know the Christian God. They feared that if children were not educated, they would be a menace to the social order of the country. Canadian politicians wished to find a cheap way out of their long-term commitments to Aboriginal people. Christian churches sought government support for their missionary efforts. The schools were part of the colonization and conversion of Aboriginal people and were intended to bring civilization and salvation to their children. These were the rationales that were used to justify making the lives of so many children so unhappy. The imperial context. The whole part of the residential school was a part of a bigger scheme of colonization. The schools were there with the intent to change people, to make them like others and to make them not fit. And today, you know, we have to learn to decolonize. Shirley Flowers, Statement to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. The mandate of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada requires it to report on the history, purpose, operation, and supervision of Canada's residential schools. These schools were part of a process that brought European states and Christian churches together in a complex and powerful manner. The history of the schools can be best understood in the context of this relationship between the growth of global European-based empires and the Christian churches. Starting in the 16th century, European states gained control of Indigenous peoples' lands throughout the world. It was an era of mass migration. Millions of Europeans arrived as colonial settlers in nearly every part of the world. Millions of Africans were transported in the European-led slave trade, in which coastal Africans collaborated. Traders from India and China spread throughout the Red Sea and Indian Ocean, bringing with them indentured servants whose lives were little different from those of slaves. The activities of explorers, farmers, prospectors, trading companies, or missionaries often set the stage for expansionary wars, the negotiation and the breaking of treaties, attempts at cultural assimilation, and the exploitation and marginalization of the original inhabitants of the colonized lands. Over time, the indigenous children in places as distant from one another as East Africa, Australia, and Siberia would be separated from their parents and sent to residential schools. The spread of European-based empires was set in motion in the 15th century when the voyages of maritime explorers revealed potential sources of new wealth to the monarchs of Europe. The Spanish conquest of the Aztecs and the Incas gave Spain, and ultimately all of Europe, access to the resources of North and South America. This not only enriched the Old World, but it also unleashed an unceasing wave of migration, trade, conquest, and colonization. It marked the beginning of the creation of a European-dominated global economy. Although it was led initially by Spain and Portugal, this era of imperial expansion came to be directed by Holland, France, and in the end, most stunningly, by Britain. Empires were established militarily. They engaged in extensive and violent wars with one another, maintained a military presence on their frontiers, and conducted innumerable military campaigns to put down nationalist uprisings. Colonies were established to be exploited economically. The benefits of empire could come directly as taxes, as precious metals, or as raw materials for industries in the homeland. 
Colonies often were required to purchase their imports solely from the homeland, making them a captive market. The mere presence of indigenous people in these newly colonized lands blocked settler access to the land. To gain control of the land of indigenous people, colonists negotiated treaties, waged wars of extinction, eliminated traditional landholding practices, disrupted families, and imposed a political and spiritual order that came complete with new values and cultural practices. Treaty promises often went unfulfilled. United States General William Tecumseh Sherman is quoted as having said, we have made more than 1,000 treaties with the various Indian tribes and have not kept one of them. In commenting on Sherman's statement, in 1886, C.C. Painter, a critic of American Indian policy, observed that the United States had never intended to keep them. They were not made to be kept, but to serve a present purpose, to settle a present difficulty in the easiest manner possible, to acquire a desired good with the least possible compensation, and then to be disregarded as soon as this purpose was tainted, and we were strong enough to enforce a new and more profitable arrangement. The outcome is usually disastrous for Indigenous people, while the chief beneficiaries of empire were the colonists and their descendants. Many of the colonies they settled grew to be among the most prosperous societies in the late 19th and early 20th century world. Settler colonies often went on to gain political independence. In the case of Canada and the United States of America, these newly created nations spread across North America. As they expanded, they continued to incorporate Indigenous peoples in their lands into empires. Colonialism remains an ongoing process, shaping both the structure and the quality of the relationship between the settlers and Indigenous peoples. At their height, the European empires laid claim to most of the Earth's surface and controlled the seas. Numerous arguments were advanced to justify such extravagant interventions into the lands and lives of other peoples. These were largely elaborations on two basic concepts. One, the Christian God had given the Christian nations the right to colonize the lands they discovered as long as they converted the indigenous populations. And two, the Europeans were bringing the benefits of civilization, a concept that was intertwined with Christianity, to the heathen. In short, it was contended that people were being colonized for their own benefit, either in this world or the next. In the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church, building on the traditions of the Roman Empire, conceived of itself as the guardian of a universal world order. The adoption of Christianity within the Roman Empire, which defined itself as civilized, reinforced the view that to be civilized was to be Christian. The Catholic papacy was already playing a role in directing and legitimizing colonialism prior to Christopher Columbus's voyages to the Americas in the 1490s largely by granting Catholic kingdoms the right to colonize lands they discovered. In 1493, Pope Alexander VI issued the first of four orders referred to as papal bulls, a term that takes its name from the Latin word for the mold used to seal the document, that granted most of Northern and South America to Spain, the kingdom that had sponsored Columbus's voyage of the preceding year. These orders help shape the political and legal arguments that have come to be referred to as the Doctrine of Discovery, which was used to justify the colonization of the Americas in the 16th century. In return, the Spanish were expected to convert the indigenous peoples of the Americas to Christianity. Other European rulers rejected the Pope's ability to give away sovereignty over half the world, but they did not necessarily reject the Doctrine of Discovery. They simply modified it. The English argued that a claim to discovered lands was valid if the discoverer was able to take possession of them. Harman Verrilst, who promoted the colonization of the 18th century of what is now the southern coast of the United States, wrote that this right arising from the first discovery is the first and fundamental right of all European nations as to their claim of lands in America. This doctrine of discovery was linked to a second idea the lands being claimed were terra nullius, no man's land, and therefore open to claim. On the basis of this concept, the British government claimed ownership of the entire Australian continent. There, the doctrine of terra nullius remained the law until it was successfully challenged in court in 1992. 
Under this doctrine, imperialists could argue that the presence of indigenous people did not void a claim of terra nullius, since the indigenous people simply occupied rather than owned the land. True ownership, they claimed, could only come with European-style agriculture. Underlying these arguments was the belief that the colonizers were bringing civilization to savage people who could never civilize themselves. The civilizing mission rested on a belief of racial and cultural superiority. European writers and politicians often arranged racial groups in a hierarchy, each with their own set of mental and physical capabilities. The special gifts of the Europeans meant that it was inevitable that they would conquer the lesser peoples. Beneath the Europeans, in descending order, were Asians, Africans, and the indigenous peoples of the Americas and Australia. Some people held that Europeans had reached the pinnacle of civilization through a long and arduous process. In this view, the other peoples of the world had been held back by such factors as climate, geography, and migration. Through a civilizing process, Europeans could, however, raise the people of the world up to their level. This view was replaced in the 19th century by a racism that chose to cloak itself in the language of science and held that the peoples of the world had different abilities. Some argued that, for genetic reasons, there were limits on the ability of the less developed peoples to improve. In some cases, it was thought, contact with superior races could lead to only one outcome the extinction of the inferior peoples. These ideas shaped global policies towards Indigenous peoples. In 1883, Britain's Lord Rosebery, a future British Prime Minister, told an Australian audience, it is on the British race, whether in Great Britain or the United States, or the colonies, or wherever it may be, that rest the highest hopes of those who try to penetrate the dark future, or who seek to raise and better the patient masses of mankind. Residential schools were established in the shadow of these ideas. In the year that Rosebery gave the speech, the Canadian government opened its first industrial residential school for Aboriginal people at Battleford on the Canadian prairies. The Christian churches not only provided the moral justification for the colonization of other people's lands, but they also dispatched missionaries to the colonized nations in order to convert the heathen. From the 15th century on, the indigenous peoples of the world were the objects of a strategy of spiritual and cultural conquest that had its origins in Europe. While they often work in isolation and under difficult conditions, missionaries were representatives of worldwide organizations that enjoyed the backing of influential individuals in some of the most powerful nations of the world, and which came to amass considerable experience in transforming different cultures. Residential schools figured prominently in missionary work, not only in Canada, but around the world. Christian missionaries played a complex but central role in the European colonial project. Their presence helped justify the extension of empires since they were visibly spreading the word of God to the heathen. If their efforts were unsuccessful, the missionaries might conclude that those who refused to accept the Christian message could not expect the protection of the church or the law, thus clearing the way for their destruction. Although missionaries often attempted to soften the impact of imperialism, they were also committed to making the greatest changes in the culture and psychology of the colonized. They might, for example, seek to have traders give fair prices and to have government officials provide relief in times of need, but they also worked to undermine relationships to the land, language, religion, family relations, educational practices, morality, and social custom. Missionary zeal was also fueled by the often violent division that had separated the Christian world into Catholic and Protestant churches. Both Catholics and Protestants invested heavily in the creation of missionary organizations that were intended to engage overseas missionary work. The most well-known Catholic orders were the Franciscans, the Jesuits, and the Oblates. The Oblates originally focused their attention on the poor and working classes of France, but from the 1830s onwards, they engaged in overseas missionary work. They established themselves in eastern Canada, the Pacific Northwest, Ceylon, Texas, and Africa. The Oblates administered a majority of the Roman Catholic residential schools in Canada. They could not have done this work without the support of a number of female religious orders, most particularly the Sisters of Charity, the Grey Nuns, the Sisters of Providence, the Sisters of St. Anne, and the missionary Oblate Sisters of the Sacred Heart of Mary Immaculate. The British Church Missionary Society was also a global enterprise. 
By the middle of the 19th century, this Anglican society had missions across the globe in such spaces as India, New Zealand, West and East Africa, China, and the Middle East. The Society's Highbury College in London provided missionaries with several years of training in arithmetic, grammar, history, geography, religion, education, and the administration of schools. By 1901, the Church Missionary Society had an annual income of over £300,000. It used this money to support 510 male missionaries, 326 unmarried females, and 365 ordained pastors around the world. The Catholics and Anglicans were not the only European-based missionary society to take up work in Canada. Presbyterians and Methodists, originally drawing support from the United Kingdom, undertook missionary work among Aboriginal people in the early 19th century. On the coast of Labrador, members of the Moravian Brotherhood, an order that had its origins in what is now the Czech Republic, carried out missionary work from the early 18th century onwards. Protestant missionary work also depended on the often underpaid and voluntary labor of missionary wives and single women who had been recruited by missionary societies. Missionaries viewed Aboriginal culture as a barrier to both spiritual salvation and the ongoing existence of Aboriginal people. They were determined to replace traditional economic pursuits with European-style peasant agriculture. They believed that cultural transformation required the imposition of social control and separation from both traditional communities and European settlements. In the light of these beliefs, it is not surprising that they were proponents of an educational world that separated children from the influences of their families and cultures, imposed a new set of values and beliefs, provided a basic elementary education, and created institutions whose daily life reflected Europe's emerging work discipline. In short, they sought to impose the foreign and transforming worlds of the residential school. Colonization was undertaken to meet the perceived needs of the imperial powers. The justification offered for colonialism, the need to bring Christianity and civilization to the indigenous peoples of the world, may have been a sincerely and firmly held belief but as a justification for intervening in the lives of other peoples, it does not hold up to legal, moral, or even logical scrutiny. The papacy had no authority to give away lands that belonged to Indigenous people. The doctrine of discovery cannot serve as the basis for a legitimate claim to the lands that were colonized, if for no other reason than that the so-called discovered lands were already well known to the Indigenous peoples who had inhabited them for thousands of years. The wars of conquest that took place to strip Indigenous peoples of their lands around the globe were not morally just wars. Indigenous peoples were not, as colonists often claimed, subhuman, and neither were they living in violation of any universally agreed upon set of values. There was no moral imperative to impose Christianity on the Indigenous peoples of the world. They did not need to be civilized. Indeed, there is no hierarchy of societies. Indigenous peoples had systems that were complete unto themselves and met their needs. Those systems were dynamic, they changed over time, and they were capable of continued change. Taken as a whole, the colonial process relied for its justification on the sheer presumption of taking a specific set of European beliefs and values and proclaiming them to be universal values that could be imposed upon the peoples of the world. This universalizing of European values so central to the colonial project that was extended to North America served as the prime justification and rationale for the imposition of a residential school system on the indigenous peoples of Canada. Residential schools in pre-Confederation Canada. In Canada, residential schooling was closely linked to colonization and missionary crusades. The first boarding school for Aboriginal people in what is now Canada was established in the early 17th century near the French trading post at the future site of Quebec City. At this Roman Catholic school, missionaries hoped to both civilize and Christianize young Aboriginal boys. The school was a failure. Parents were reluctant to send their children, and the students were quick to run away and return home. Later efforts in New France met with no greater success. After the British conquest of New France in 1763, the idea of residential schooling lay dormant until the early 19th century. In the first decade of that century, the New England Company, a British-based missionary society, funded a boarding school operation in Sussex Vale, New Brunswick.
The goals were to teach young Mi'kmaq and Milicete children trades and to convert them to Protestantism. In the 1820s, John West, an Anglican missionary from England, opened a boarding school for Aboriginal students at Red River. Although these efforts failed to take root, in 1834, the Mohawk Institute, a mission school in the Grand River in what is now Ontario, began taking in boarders. This school would remain open in operation until 1970. In 1847, Egerton Ryerson, the superintendent of schools for Upper Canada, recommended the establishment of residential schools in which Aboriginal students would be given instruction in English language, arithmetic, elementary geometry, or knowledge of forms, geography, and the elements of general history, natural history, and agricultural chemistry, writing, drawing, and vocal music bookkeeping, especially in reference to farmers' accounts, religion, and morals. This he thought of as a plain English education adapted to the working farmer and mechanic. In this, their object is identical with that of every good common school. Pupils should be taught agriculture, kitchen gardening, and mechanics so far as mechanics is connected with making and repairing the most useful agricultural implements. After the release of Ryerson's report, Methodist missionaries operated a number of boarding schools in southern Ontario in the 1850s. One of them, the Mount Elgin School at Muncie Town, later Muncie, did not close until 1946. The first of what would be a string of Roman Catholic residential schools in what is now British Columbia opened in the early 1860s. A school in Fort Providence in what is now the Northwest Territories began taking in students in 1867. The Colonization of the Northwest. After the Canadian state was established in 1867, the federal government began making small per-student grants to many of the church-run boarding schools. Federal government involvement in residential schooling did not begin in earnest until the 1880s. The catalyst for this expansion was the 1870 transfer of much of contemporary Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Northern Quebec, Northern Ontario, and the Northwest Territories and Nunavut from the Hudson's Bay Company to the Canadian government. The following year, British Columbia was brought into confederation by the promise of a continental rail link. Canadian politicians intended to populate the newly acquired lands with settlers from Europe and Ontario. These settlers were expected to buy goods produced in central Canada and ship their harvests by rail to western and eastern ports and then onto international markets. Settling the Northwest, as this territory came to be known in this manner, meant colonizing the over 40,000 Indigenous people who lived there. The Rupert's Land Order of 1870, which transferred much of the Northwest to Canadian control, required that the claims of the Indian tribes to compensation for lands required for purposes of settlement will be considered and settled in conformity with the equitable principles which have uniformly governed the British Crown in its dealings with the Aborigines. These principles had been set down in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which placed limits on the conditions under which Aboriginal land could be transferred. If at any time any of the said Indians should be inclined to dispose of the said lands, they could do so, but land could be sold only to the Crown, and the sale had to be at a meeting of Indians that had been held specifically for that purpose. The Royal Proclamation, in effect, ruled that any future transfer of Indian land would take the form of a treaty between sovereigns. In this, it stands as one of the clearest and earliest expressions of what has been identified as a long-standing element of Canadian Aboriginal policy. To enable the colonization of the Northwest in 1871, the federal government began negotiating the first in a series of what came to be termed as the Numbered Treaties with the First Nations of Western Canada and Northern Canada. The only alternative to negotiating treaties would have been to ignore the legal obligations of the Rupert's Land Order and attempt to subdue the First Nations militarily, but that would have been a very costly proposition. In 1870, when the entire Canadian government budget was $19 million, the United States was spending more than that, $20 million a year, on its Indian wars alone. Despite all these pressures, the government took a slow and piecemeal approach to treaty making. Through the treaties, Aboriginal peoples were seeking agricultural supplies and training, as well as relief during periods of epidemic or famine in a time of social and economic transition. They saw the treaty process as establishing a reciprocal relationship that would be lasting. The goal was to gain the skills that would allow them to continue to control their own destinies and retain their culture and identity as Aboriginal people. 
As Adin Kaku, Star Blanket, said, we Indians can learn the ways of women that made the white men strong. The provisions varied from treaty to treaty, but they generally included funds for hunting and fishing supplies, agricultural assistance, yearly payments for band members, annuities, and an amount of reserve lands based on the population of the band. First Nations never asked for residential schools as part of the treaty process, and neither did the government suggest that schools would be established. The education provisions also varied in different treaties, but promised to pay for schools on reserve or teachers. The federal government was slow to live up to its treaty obligations. For example, many First Nations were settled on reserves that were much smaller than they were entitled to, while others were not provided with any reserve. Some obligations remain unfulfilled to this day. The commitment to establish on-reserve schools was also ignored in many cases. As a result, parents who wished to see their children educated were forced to send them to residential schools. The Assimilation Policy From the Canadian government's perspective, the most significant elements in the treaties were the written provisions by which the First Nations agreed to cede, release, surrender, and yield their land to the Crown. In the treaty negotiations, however, federal officials left the impression that the government intended the treaties to establish a permanent relationship with First Nations. Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris told the Cree in 1876, What I trust and hope we will do is not for today and tomorrow only. What I will promise and what I believe and hope you will take is to last as long as the sun shines and yonder river flows. In reality, the federal government policy was very different from what Morris said. The intent of the government's policy, which was firmly established in legislation at the time the treaties had been negotiated, was to assimilate Aboriginal people into broader Canadian society. At the end of this process, Aboriginal people were expected to have ceased to exist as a distinct people with their own governments, cultures, and identities. The Federal Indian Act, first adopted in 1876, like earlier pre-Confederation legislation, defined who was and who was not an Indian under Canadian law. The Act also defined a process through which a person could lose status as an Indian. Women, for example, could lose status simply by marrying a man who did not have status. Men could lose status in a number of ways, including graduating from a university. Upon giving up their status, individuals were also granted a portion of the band's reserve land. First Nations people were unwilling to surrender their Aboriginal identity in this manner. Until 1920, other than women who involuntarily lost their Indian status upon marriage to a non-status individual, only 250 Indians voluntarily gave up their status. In 1920, the federal government amended the Indian Act to give it the power to strip individuals of their status against their will. In explaining the purpose of the amendment to a parliamentary committee, Indian Affairs Deputy Minister Duncan Campbell Scott said that our object is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question, and no Indian department that is the whole object of this bill. The other major element in the bill that Scott was referring to empowered the government to compel parents to send their children to residential schools. Residential schooling was always more simply an educational program. It was an integral part of a conscious policy of cultural genocide. Further evidence of this assault on Aboriginal identity can be found in amendments to the Indian Act, banning a variety of Aboriginal culture and spiritual practices. The two most prominent of these were the West Coast Potlatch and the Prairie Thirst Dance, often referred to as the Sundance. Residential school principals had been in the forefront of the campaign to ban these standard ceremonies and also urged the government to enforce the bans once they were put in place. The Aboriginal right to self-government was also undermined. The Indian Act gave the federal government the authority to veto decisions made by band councils and to depose chiefs and councillors. The Act placed restrictions on First Nations farmers' ability to sell their crops and take out loans. Over the years, the government also assumed greater authority as to how reserve land could be disposed of. In some cases, entire reserves were relocated against the will of the residents. The Indian Act was a piece of colonial legislation by which, in the name of protection, one group of people ruled and controlled another. The Industrial School Initiative It was in keeping with this intent to assimilate 
Aboriginal peoples and in the process to eliminate its government-to-government relationship with First Nations, but the federal government dramatically increased its involvement in residential schooling in the 1880s. In December 1878, J.S. Dennis, the Deputy Minister of the Department of the Interior, prepared a memorandum for Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald on the country's Aboriginal policy. Dennis advised Macdonald that the long-term goal should be to instruct our Indian and half-breed populations in farming, raising cattle, and the mechanical trades, rendering them self-sufficient. This would pave the way for their emancipation from tribal government and for their final absorption into the general community. Dennis argued that residential schools were key to fulfilling these goals. It was his opinion that in a short time, schools might become self-sustaining institutions. In the following year, Nicholas Davin, a failed conservative candidate, carried out a brief study of the boarding schools the United States government had established for Native Americans. He recommended that Canada establish a series of such schools on the prairies. Davin acknowledged that a central element of the education provided at these schools would be directed towards the destruction of Aboriginal spirituality. Since all civilizations were based on religion, it would be inexcusable, he thought, to do away with Aboriginal faith without supplying a better one. For this reason, he recommended that while the government should fund the schools, the church should operate them. The decision to continue to rely on the churches to administer the schools on a day-to-day basis had serious consequences. The government constantly struggled and failed to assert control over the church's drive to increase the number of schools they operated. At various times, each denomination involved in school operation established boarding schools without government support or approval, and then lobbied later for per capita funding. When the churches concluded, quite legitimately, that the per capita grant they received was too low, they sought other types of increases in school funding. Building on their network of missions in the Northwest, the Catholics quickly came to dominate the field, usually operating twice as many schools as did the Protestant denominations. Amongst the Protestant churches, the Anglicans were predominant, establishing and maintaining more residential schools than the Methodists or the Presbyterians. The United Church, created by a union of Methodist and Presbyterian congregations, took over most of the Methodist and Presbyterian schools in the mid-1920s. Presbyterian congregations that did not participate in the union established the Presbyterian Church in Canada and retained responsibility for two residential schools. In addition to these national denominations, a local Baptist mission ran a residence for Aboriginal students in Whitehorse in the 1940s and 1950s, and a Mennonite ministry operated three schools in northwestern Ontario in the 1970s and 1980s. Each faith, in its turn, claimed government discrimination against it. Competition for converts meant that churches sought to establish schools in the same locations as their rivals leading to internal divisions within communities and expensive duplication of services. The model for these residential schools for Aboriginal children, both in Canada and the United States, did not come from the private boarding schools to which members of the economic elites in Britain and Canada sent their children. Instead, the model came from the reformatories and industrial schools that were being constructed in Europe and North America for the children of the urban poor. The British Parliament adopted the Reformatory Schools Act in 1854 and the Industrial Schools Act in 1857. By 1882, over 17,000 children were in Britain's industrial schools. Under Ontario's 1880 Act for the Protection and Reformation of Neglected Children, a judge could send children under the age of 14 to an industrial school, where they might be required to stay until they turned 18. Such schools could be dangerous and violent places. As the Halifax Industrial School, first offenders were strapped and repeated offenders were placed in cells on a bread and water ration. From there, they might be sent to the penitentiary. The Canadian government also drew inspiration from the United States. There, the first in a series of large-scale government-operated boarding schools for Native Americans opened in 1879 in a former army barracks in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. On the basis of Davin's report and developments in the United States, the federal government decided to open three industrial schools. The first one opened in Battleford in what is now Saskatchewan in 1883. It was placed under the administration of an Anglican minister. The following year, two more industrial schools opened, one at Capel in what is now Saskatchewan and one at High River in what is now Alberta. 
Both these schools were administered by principals nominated by the Roman Catholic Oblate Order. The federal government not only built these schools, but it also assumed all the costs of operating them. Recruiting students for these schools was difficult. According to the Indian Affairs Annual Report in 1884, there were only 27 students at the three schools. Unlike the church-run boarding schools, which provided a limited education with a heavy emphasis on religious instruction, the industrial schools were intended to prepare First Nations people for integration into Canadian society by teaching them basic trades, particularly farming. Generally, industrial schools were larger than boarding schools. They were located in urban areas and although church managed, usually required federal approval prior to construction. The boarding schools were smaller institutions, were located on or near reserves, and provided a more limited education. The differences between the industrial schools and the boarding schools eroded over time. By the 1920s, the federal government ceased to make any distinction between them, simply referring to them as residential schools. In justifying the investment in industrial schools to Parliament in 1883, Public Works Minister Hector Langevin argued that, if you wish to educate these children, you must separate them from their parents during the time that they are being educated. If you leave them in the family, they may know how to read and write, but they still remain savages. Whereas by separating them in the way proposed, they acquire the habits and tastes. It is to be hoped only the good tastes of civilized people. The federal government entered into residential schooling at a time when it was colonizing Aboriginal lands in Western Canada. It recognized that through the treaties, it had made commitments to provide Aboriginal people with relief in periods of economic distress. It also feared that as traditional Aboriginal economic pursuits were marginalized or eliminated by settlers, the government might be called upon to provide increased relief in this context. The federal government chose to invest in residential schooling for a number of reasons. First, it would provide Aboriginal people with skills that would allow them to participate in the coming market-based economy. Second, it would further their political assimilation. It was hoped that students who were educated in residential schools would give up their status and not return to their reserved communities and families. Third, the schools were seen as engines of cultural and spiritual change. Savages were to emerge as Christian white men. There was also a national security element to the schools. Indian Affairs official Ansel McCray observed that it is unlikely that any tribe or tribes would give trouble of a serious nature to the government whose members had children completely under government control. Duncan Campbell Scott succinctly summarized Indian Affairs goals for the schools in 1909. It includes not only a scholastic education, but instruction in the means of gaining a livelihood from the soil or as a member of an industrial or mercantile community, and the substitution of Christian ideals of conduct and morals of Aboriginal concepts of both. The achievement of such invasive and ambitious goals would require a substantial level of funding this was never forthcoming. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com.